contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Hey there, boys and girls. Short podcast this week. What I thought I'd do is just answer some questions. For those who don't know, I am now answering questions through Google Voice. If you call in, leave the question, I'll answer it. Picked a few, got a lot of them piled up, so I'm going to answer probably four or five right now, just as something to tide you over here before we get to the next podcast. The number to call is 484-416-5654. Again, 484-416-5654. I'll answer your questions. So let's start here. This is going to be Decker. So let's start with Decker's question. I'll, I'll do it like I said. I'll do four or five tonight. Andrew, Decker Katie, want to say thank you for that awesome sports analytic conference uh, speech that you put up there. That was a great listen. My question is whether you thought when the Jets initially traded up to the number three spot, but they heard rumblings of Cleveland taking Baker number one overall, which kind of prompted them to end up moving up, even though, even if there was just some whispers that they may have heard. Um, the reason I ask is because that trade was highly criticized, uh, and supposedly John Dorsey and his team were very tight-lipped about who they were taking at the number one spot, and who knows if they even had that decision made by the time the Jets made their trade, or if they were leaning towards that way anyway. But just because... It seems like a tough trade to make unless you know you're going to get your guy. And the media reports came out anyway about two days before that the Browns were taking Mayfield. So curious if you thought the Jets heard some rumblings about that, which potentially prompted them to trade up when they did. Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question, Decker. And it really sort of segues me off of last week's podcast, which I haven't talked to you guys since. The Jack Mills podcast. Listen, I wanted Jack on because here was a guy who's 80 years old, represented a Heisman Trophy winner out of Oklahoma 48 years ago named Steve Owens. Then he represents one 48 years later named Baker Mayfield. And I just thought it was interesting that Baker didn't go with CAA or Athletes First, these big firms that represent top picks, especially quarterbacks. And his information was great about assigning Baker of one meeting at the big O. Uh, the Red O restaurant in West Hollywood, and even before they ordered the entree, and sort of pre-qualified by his friends. And it was really a great podcast. But of course, everyone jumped on where he volunteered to me uh, about Baker Mayfield, that all these teams were in on him. He had that it, however you describe it, and that there was a surprise team, which he said, of course, was the New England Patriots. So once he said that, the podcast blew up. I kind of learned the uh, meaning of going viral because everyone was talking about it. It was trending on Twitter, and I had the NFL Network and ESPN and Fox and everyone wanting to use it on their shows that night. So, listen, uh, what was going on with the top quarterbacks? If you believe Jack Mills, and I have no reason not to, he's not, he's not trying to spin anything after the guy went number one in the draft, that his baseline was the Jets at number three, and then if really something crazy happened, then he'd end up at, at the Denver at five. But of course he went one. And then we can debate about whether the Patriots had enough ammo to get to two. But of course the Patriots would be interested if that was the guy. And of course, Josh McDaniel was out, was down there the week of the draft. So it was the guy. Why not? You know, they've got the oldest quarterback in the league and no backup plan. Of course they should have gone after him. But 
in terms of the Jets, when they made the trade to get from six to three, you would have hoped that they had all three quarterbacks in mind, whatever three they were, Mayfield, Darnold, and whoever else, Allen or Rosen, and they knew they could get one. Otherwise, they would have worked harder to get to one. So my sense is Mayfield would have been the guy for the Jets, but who knows? Maybe they had him ranked even. Maybe Mayfield was a 1A and or 1, and Darnold was a 1A. But to get to 3, they knew there was a chance that whoever they liked would go at 1, whoever they liked the most. So, again, on the Brown situation, I know Dorsey, he is tight-lipped as ever. He's not going to let it, just like Green Bay. No one, Ted, no one knew who Ted Thompson was taking, and Dorsey was his right-hand man. So that was, to me, par for the course. Dorsey wasn't going to let it out. I think Mayfield had that it that teams wanted, and I think it was more than the Browns. Whether that includes Patriots, Jets, or Broncos, we may never know. It's not in the best interest of the Jets to say anything like that. It's only in their best interest that Darnold was the guy. So that's their story. They're sticking to it, and you know we'll see how it plays out between Darnold, Mayfield, Rosen, and Allen over the next 2, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Let's go to the next question. Looks like this one is from Ben. Hey, Andrew. This is uh, Ben here in Tennessee. I'm a lawyer like you, and I had a question about an agent's duty to maintain the confidences of their client. Uh, As you know, a lot of uh, agents also happen to be lawyers, and the recent Darius Geis uh, draft fall made me think. The rumor is that he fell in the draft because his relationship with one or more agents was terminated, and then those agents uh, wanted to have allegiances with teams and turned over information about uh, Mr. Geis. Whether that's true or not, I'm just curious, do agents have any ethical obligations to maintain the confidences of a client after the relationship ends? Also, if they happen to be an attorney, does that get them in trouble with their law license uh, so that's my question. I hope you can answer it. Thanks. You got it, Ben. A lot to unpack here. First of all, you don't have to be a lawyer to be an agent, at least on the football side. It does require a graduate degree. That's something relatively new compared to the past. You have over 900 agents for 1,800 players, but most agents are represented by a group of, I mean, most players are represented by a group of, I don't know, 10 to 12 agents. You have Drew Rosenhaus with, uh, Rosenhaus with over 100 players. You have a couple the CAAs and Joel Siegel at Lagarde Ray, uh, you know, they're in the 70, 60, 70 player range. Athletes first is up there. So you can see how it backs up there. Now, uh, you don't have to be a lawyer. I will say this in my negotiations with teams over the years for the Packers with agents, excuse me, just so worked out that the best negotiators I dealt with, the most professional people I dealt with, the best thinkers I dealt with, the most disciplined and creative contract structures that I dealt with were lawyers. You don't have to be a lawyer, but I always prefer dealing with lawyers. In terms of ethical obligations, yes, they're more for the lawyer side, but not through the NFLPA. I don't think the NFLPA, which governs agents, will treat agents that are lawyers or non-lawyers differently. That will come from state and federal bar associations in terms of that. But it always is a loose definition because By definition, agents recruit. That's the lifeblood of what you do as a sports agent. You go out there and fill the pipeline and get new clients. Well, that requires solicitation. And there are rules against solicitation, state and federal, even though we see 
you know, all the, the infomercials with the lawyers and, of course, on the buses, call Lundy, whatever it is. So I don't have a hardline answer, black and white, on what the boundaries are for turning over information about clients that maybe things don't work out well. I don't know what happened with Darius Juice and former agents or current agents. You know, we saw what happened with uh, the guy with the uh, the bong and the gas mask last year, Tunsil, Laramie Tunsil. You know, it's sort of the, the natural assumption is that was a rival agent group doing that. Who knows? Again, these are speculative things, but it's a cutthroat business and it's most cutthroat at the top of the draft, even more so than veterans who make tons more money than top of the draft players. It really is cutthroat because to get these guys, everyone's after them, and you can see how things happen like that. Hope that answers your question. It is a tough business. Again, margins are being lowered. Uh, I think you've got to differentiate yourself. You've got to show what is different about you than the run-of-the-mill agent. I dealt with this back when I was Ricky Williams' agent back in the day, and I lost him to Master P because I was just a football agent. What did I offer more than that? Nah, Master P offered something different. That's happening now. The industry is becoming a little bit more people beyond straight football agents or basketball agents. We'll see more of that even in the future. Okay, third question. Let's go to Herb. Hey, Herb. Hi, Andrew. This is Herb from Philly. I have a question about who is responsible for medical expenses. Tim Jernigan just hurt his back during the off season away from the Eagles facility. Who is responsible for the expense? And then what if Jernigan wants the procedure done by a surgeon other than who the team wishes? What if he wants a different course of treatment other than the team wants, like rehab instead of surgery or vice versa? Also, Carson Wentz tore his ACL during a game. Surgery was done by a surgeon in Pittsburgh. What if the team wanted a different surgeon? Who is responsible then? Thank you very much. Thank you, Herb. This is an issue that comes up all the time in terms of team responsibility for injury. Listen, the off-season's become shorter. There's less time at the facility. Guys are away uh, working out. Are you really going to hold it against them if they get hurt? The sort of the standard legal line is, are they being hurt in the practice or playing of football? Now, the fact that it happens elsewhere, yeah, the Eagles could probably try to file a grievance or have some make Jernigan file a grievance if they put him on the NFI list, non-football injury, because it happened away from the the facility and maybe they're in a track or they're in a field that has a hole in it. And that's not the Eagles fault. But the fact is they're going to pay him this year. I think what they did is redo the next year. And of course, that'd be a meeting of minds between his agent and him uh, and the team, the Eagles. So we don't know what went on there. But this, I mean, it happened with Jason Peters. Uh, a couple of years ago where he hurt his Achilles away from the facility with less time at the facility, but the reduced off season as part of the CBA, this is an issue now, something to be looked into. The bigger issue here to me, you bring up Herb, is that there is an inherent mistrust, distrust now, even with the most, what's the word, benevolent players and agents. There is an inherent mistrust, distrust between team medical personnel and players and agents. That's a problem. And that is much deeper than when I was in the league through 2009. We see it almost all the time now, where even a player like Carson Wentz, he's getting surgery not from the Philadelphia Eagles team doctor. He's getting it from his own doctor, the agent, the doctor the agent recommends. 
And teams don't like this because then you're sort of, you know, the doctor he sees every day is not the doctor that did the surgery. The, the rehab's coming from the trainers who weren't around when he got the surgery. Now, again, rehab is rehab. But <clears throat> there's this inherent mistrust, distrust. I, at Green Bay, didn't understand it because, uh, you know, full disclosure, Pat McKenzie, our team doctor, was one of my best friends, still is a lifelong friend. But to mistrust him? I mean, this is the most player-friendly doctor I know. So again, you have all these things going on uh, in the treatment of players. Jernigan was an unfortunate example. It just shows what can happen with so much time away. Obviously, if someone's tethered to the facility, there's no issue in terms of who's responsible. But even away from the facility, a team's got to think long and hard about fighting it, which is basically putting on NFI, not paying them or paying them a reduced rate. And in this case, the Eagles seem to get their pound of flesh out of this for future monies and, I believe, an invalidation or reduction of his future guarantee. Sorry, I got some music in the background, sort of underscoring my voice, back from my DJ days at Stanford. I uh, hope you like it. Anyway, I hope that answers your question, Herb. It is an ongoing problem we're going to deal with a lot uh, uh, in this team versus agent slash player and who does the medicals. I'd say, I don't know what the number is, I'm guessing 80% of surgeries now are probably done away from the team. Think about that. Where back in the day when I was in the league, it'd probably be vice versa. 80% of the surgeries is done by the team doctor. Now there's this mistrust, distrust again. As money gets bigger, as stakes get larger, you're seeing more problematic situations between the union and the league, but it filters down to the teams and the players, especially with medical. And the final question of the night, uh, let's see, this one, sort of about my background. Let's hear from Brian. Hi, Andrew. My name's Brian. Um, I really enjoy the podcast. You do excellent work. Give great information to everyone. I'd be interested in hearing a little bit about your um, transition from becoming a uh, player's agent um, to going, or what kind of reasons you became a GM after that? Was it just opportunity? Was it a, a desire that you had and that was the original reason you got into the agent market? Anyway, um, great, great podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much, Brian. I mean, this again gets to my background, which I'll talk about a little bit here. Yeah, I was an agent for many years, and I mentioned Ricky Williams leaving me for Master P. That was kind of a, a life, one door closed, one door open. At the exact same time that was happening, the Packers were calling. I had had Packers in the past. My only client at that time was Matt Hasselbeck, who was a practice squad third-string quarterback. I finally called him. I said, I can't deal with Hasselbeck right now. Now I got Ricky Williams. I got Master P. And they called and said, they listen, uh, here's what's going on. Let me turn the music down a little bit. Uh, Mike Holmgren, our coach, just went to Seattle Seahawks. I said, yeah, I see SportsCenter. What's up? Well, he took Reinfeld. Reinfeld was the guy that ran the whole operation business football operations, and he took him to Seattle, and I said, okay, sorry to hear that. They said, well, how about switching sides? I said, Green Bay? They said, yeah. So anyway, I come up there. I'm very direct. I said to Ron Wolf, the GM, don't take offense, but do I have to actually move here to do this job? And he said, no offense taken, but yeah, you got to be here. So that was the start of my nine and a half years in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Um, a quick comparison of agent and team on the agent side you're really worried about your guys and that's your focus and you're almost like fantasy football 
because you're worried about this guy on that team. You hope this guy on this team does well. You hope this, but you're not really concerned about team performance except your own fandom. On the team side, obviously, it's all team, and you're renegotiating, you're re-engineering, you're re-architecting, you're re-massaging the roster all the time. Who's in, who's out, how do we fit everyone? I'd say managing the salary caps like stuffing an octopus into a box. There's always something hanging out. But uh, my reasons were, you know, obviously the Ricky Williams thing was a trigger, but I just felt like it was time. It was time to do something else. Uh, and the management thing, I thought maybe later in life, but it was it was an opportunity right there to go to one of the more storied franchises in the league and really run their whole business operation. I did everything except coach and scout, really, sort of all the uh, caps and contracts and player grievances and legal matters and business matters. So whatever came up, that was my time in Green Bay. You know, I'm asked a lot, would I go back? To a team, I just don't think so. You know, I really don't. I mean, never say never, but I just feel like been there, done that. The agent side, you know, I help out agents on contracts. Uh, I've helped out players with contracts. You know, if there's a right situation where I could keep doing all my other stuff, uh, especially running the program at Villanova, doing my media, yeah, I mean, I would, you know, I still help out agents. I would think about more of a role, but, you know, my situation is good. Life is good. You know, I'm enjoying it. So I appreciate the question. I appreciate all the questions and and the podcast. So this was kind of a podcast answering your questions, and there'll be more. More of these, and I'll filter them in. But listen, thanks for listening. Uh, you can listen to all these podcasts on iTunes. Give us a good rating. Subscribe. We really appreciate it. Stitcher, tune in, RossTucker.com, wherever you hear your podcasts. And follow me on Twitter, as always. Uh, and I'll be back next week with another edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Thanks for listening to The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.